Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host and producer of the show, and our topic today is get outside to lift your mood. I'm here today with Florence Williams, author of the book we're going to discuss, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. She is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, and numerous other publications. A fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. Her latest book is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. You can learn more about Florence Williams, her books, and articles at her website, florencewilliams.com. So welcome, Florence Williams. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest here on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much, Laurel. It's lovely to be here with you. So before we begin our dialogue about getting outside to lift your mood, let's start with a moment of contemplation. Om. So let's begin by just bringing ourselves present, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Let's just bring ourselves into the present moment, perhaps by using our senses. As we look around, what do we see? How does the air temperature feel on our skin? Is there a sound or perhaps a smell that we're aware of? And then let's bring our attention to the breath. Just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, notice on the inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air entering the nostrils. And on the exhale, the warm air flowing out. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate, taken from Yogacharya O'Brien's book of poems, The Moon Reminded Me. It's called Tides. 
This is the first section called Beginnings. Last year, I learned about small things, how they determine direction, set things in motion, like the trim tab of a great ship. Day after day, the whales came so close we could see them, our eyes naked and astonished, rising from the murky depths, mouths open like canyon walls, the ocean a river flowing through skin and teeth, breath shooting up its salty taste, sky made of seabirds, pelican, gulls, cormorants, grebes, flying, diving, swimming, dolphins and seals at their side. Think about the anchovy that brings the whale, the thousands of small acts, the slippery thoughts or fast-moving words tumbling from mouth or page going before us all the while tugging a line in the universe. So once again, Florence Williams, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's so great to have you as a guest to discuss your book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Certainly right now in this pandemic time, being outside in nature is one of the ways that I am coping. And I know that's the same for you know many of our listeners. So how did you become interested in this topic of understanding why it feels so good to be in nature? <laughs> yes, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of us intuitively understand that we feel great when we're outside, um, but we don't often sort of think about which types of nature or why, and, and sometimes we're not even really tuned in to the fact that we might feel better. And I was really interested to sort of drill down and find out what the science had to say about it, partly because I had a big transition in my own life where I was living in Colorado. I was living in the Rocky Mountains um, really for like two decades most of my adult life. And then I suddenly moved <laughs> with my family to Washington, D.C., and I felt this really dramatic sense of loss. Um, I didn't have access to my sort of usual nature trails, the, the you know, sort of fresh, lovely mountains right outside my house. And I really felt it. I felt the change. I felt um, in my in my head, I felt more anxious. I felt um, I had I had trouble sleeping. I had some brain fog. I was really stressed out by the sounds of the city. It was almost like this stress bomb went off in my own brain. And, and because of that really dramatic change in the environment, I started just thinking more about how our external landscapes get reflected in our internal emotional landscapes. Mm. And as a science writer, you know, I just thought maybe there's a little bit of research here. And it, it turned out there was a lot more than I expected. Yeah, I was really amazed. And we'll get to talk about some of that really fun stuff you discovered and write about in your book. Um, and 
just to you know point out, this is not a new book. This book was written in in twenty seventeen or published in twenty seventeen, probably written before that. Um, so, you know, here we are in this pandemic, right. and it seems even more useful and fruitful to talk about this now. So I had wanted to have you on earlier in the year. And as it turned out, our schedules didn't mesh, you know, till right about now. And here we are in this pandemic. So now that we're in this, how is it that you look at the, at your book, at the nature fix and and the relevance that it has in the present time? Yeah, I, I'm so grateful um, in terms of just my own stress levels, you know, to, to kind of have access to the lessons in this book. But I'm also just really delighted to be able to share them. Um, you know, I, I think that we are all living in a collective um, moment of great mental health risk right now. Mm-hmm. There's tremendous levels of anxiety, um, you know, isolation, depression. Um, we need connection. We need connection to each other, and we also need connection to the natural world. I think many of us are finding um, tremendous solace there. And and I, I actually am very grateful that, that we have a moment now to sort of understand and appreciate, you know, how deep and rich and, and really generate generative, you know, that connection can be. Um, I think many of us have just been, you know, running around living our lives mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, doing our jobs and doing all the millions of things that we do without always kind of slowing down, um, to kind of appreciate what we have right around us. Mm-hmm. I think your listeners are probably more tapped into the, you know, idea of living in the present moment. But I think, you know, being sort of stuck in place has given us this kind of renewed, um, you know, access to really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I was, you know, obviously we set this up, you know, a while ago when the pandemic was really maybe just beginning, but it seemed so relevant to me. Again, like I said, it's such an important thing for for me personally, and also for people who are stuck at home. And oftentimes, the way to get out outside, you know, I mean, that is the way to you know experience something else of just the you know the walls of your house. So, I was delighted to have this sort of you know intersection <laughs> of this wonderful information about how good it is for us to be in nature, along with at this at this particular moment. And, and, and there's this added layer of the fact that I think we feel like being outside is one of the safest places we can be. Yes. And, and so there's <laughs> this point. sense of, um, you know, just safety, you know, that really right. nature has always kind of provided, but now there's this added, you know, sort of truism. Yeah, absolutely. And I was reading that study, you may have seen it as well. So there was uh, the study a few months ago, I think it was that came out of Wuhan, that looked, they did very good contact tracing, and and were able to identify exactly where people had contacted the virus. And out of over, I don't remember the exact number, but I know it was over 7000 different people. There was only one person who had caught the coronavirus outside. And that was someone who had been not wearing a mask and stood close to someone else talking for a period of time. But other than that, over 7000 people, there was only one that one case. So like you were saying, it is a very safe place for us and also a very good place for us as your book details. Yeah, I mean, nature is a refuge. You know, yes. it's, it's always been. Um, and <clears throat> yeah. now it just feels that way. Even yeah. more. So the front book jacket for your book states, time in nature is not a luxury, but is essential to our humanity. So how is time in nature essential to our humanity? You know, I think that in Western cultures, we are so um, kind of conditioned to the idea that we are apart from nature, we are separate from it. 
um, we tend to think it's kind of an amenity. You know, it's if you can afford to live on a golf course, maybe you have a nice view. Um, you know, if you spend more money, you'll have a nice, um, you know, ocean view from your hotel. Uh, maybe you live in a neighborhood with parks. Um, we, we've thought of it as kind of this real estate amenity almost. Um, but what the research has shown is that it really changes our physiology to be in these environments. It changes our nervous systems. Um, it slows our blood pressure. It lifts our moods. Um, and, and, you know, the question is why? So, so I think, you know, your question really gets to this essential sort of truth of this, which is that humans evolved in these natural environments. Um, and our nervous systems evolved there. Our perceptual systems evolved there. Um, our, you know, our, our eyes are designed, our optical systems are designed to sort of interpret and read information from nature settings and from natural landscapes. And so being in those natural landscapes, just, you know, in the sort of like core neurological level, right? what we are supposed to do. And so even if we don't necessarily identify as someone who loves being in the wilderness, you know, or whatever, um, you know, our bodies are, are comfortable just reading those in those landscapes. So I mm -hmm. think that's really fascinating. And, that, and so in that way, it, you know, it, once you understand that, that it is a critical sort of relationship for our mental health um, mm -hmm. and our sense of ease in the world, then you, you understand that it's actually a kind of a human right mm -hmm. to have some of this access to nature. Um, it becomes, you know, a justice issue. It's an, it's an environmental justice issue. It's a social justice issue. It shouldn't just be for people who can afford to live on the golf course. Yeah. Oh, very well put. You were talking earlier about that sense of connection that we can get, you know, from, from being in nature. And I just wanted to say to me, that's so much about what yoga is about is that sense of connection, connection to ourselves, to the larger environment, to connection to our core, you know, being of who we really are. So one of the things you wrote about, as you and I were chatting for a minute before the show, one of the things I was fascinated about about the book is you had all these experiences. I mean, you went all over the world to find these different things in nature, which was very cool. But one of the things you write about is participating in this mappiness app study, which I actually looked up on the internet and it's still going if okay. listeners are interested. <laughs> um, and so you sign up for this app and it pings you at random times and asks you to record how happy, relaxed and alert you are. And where exactly are you and what you're doing? Um, so what have studies using this mappiness app shown us about what makes us happy? I think this is a really fascinating study. It's really harnessing the power of sort of big data. And so it has millions of data points now um, where, where people sort of, you know, record how they feel. So this is like what they call subjective well-being, how you feel in any given moment and where you're feeling that way. Um, and so the first, I think, interesting revelation from this data is that we are actually outside surprisingly little. Right. <laughs> um, so we tend to be in vehicles. We tend to be in our homes. We tend to be at work. Um, so that's the first sort of astonishing fact. You know, we, as, as, as a creature, as an animal that evolved outside, we now live in a very different habitat, right, from, from what we used to live in. Um, and the other thing is that uh, when we are outside, especially in green spaces, and the app 
can actually map exactly where you are, you know, how much green space is around you. They can overlay these maps, um, what the weather is, <laughs> for example, um, and your mood. And what they're finding is that people who are outside in your green spaces actually report being extremely happy. Um, you know, as happy as they are, you know, listening to live music or being with their friends. Um, it's one of the happiest environments we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And when at work, <laughs> we tend to rate ourselves as being particularly unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> or when we're doing childcare, mm. when we're parenting, um, which now God knows many people are doing, you know, 24 seven. So, so I, I think, again, there's a lot of these revelations that are not so intuitive necessarily. I don't think we think that, oh, if we just like walk through this tree-lined street, it's going to make us feel so much better. We don't necessarily think that. Sometimes we're drawn to those environments, but we may not really know why. And so here's an attempt to kind of quantify it and to, and to just make it visible. Um, and, and I looked at my own data. I saw that I was outside surprisingly little, but when, but when I was, I was very happy. <laughs> You know, indeed, you talk about um, another, uh, well, many, many studies, but this one I'm thinking of is where the researcher asked, the assignment was one group of people were walking outside and one group of people were walking in tunnels, but beforehand they were asked to predict how, you know, happy were they going to be doing these, you know, two activities. And there was an underappreciation of how happy the people walking outside were going to be and an overappreciation of how people who are walking in the tunnels. So that was... I think it was called the forecasting error, right? Forecasting so can, error. Yeah. yeah. Can can you talk a bit more about that? Because obviously, if people, given now we we know people are so much happier outside, why don't people spend more time there? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, humans are sort of spectacularly bad at judging what will make us feel good, and so we think, oh, if I just eat that pint of ice cream, it's going to be, it's going to make me feel great. <laughs> and if I stream Netflix, you know, for the next three hours, that's really what I want to do to be happy. Um, or it turns out like those things really don't make us very happy. They'll make us happy for a very short amount of time, like instant Sorry. gratification. Um, and, and so I, one of the, really one of the main kind of projects of my book is to encourage people to pay, just pay more attention you know, pay more attention to how you feel in a given moment and in different environments. We can learn to be better at it, but some of it involves kind of going inward, right? And seeing how our emotions feel in our bodies. Um, you know, Westerners are not very good at this. We just haven't been trained to do it. Um, mm. And we kind of go for the quick fix of, you know, the five o'clock gym or the tub of ice cream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think once we do start paying attention, we, we were out in nature, we can stop for a minute and take a deep breath and say, you know, how, how does my body feel in this moment? Mm. And, and it tends to feel pretty darn good. It tends to feel alive when we are actually utilizing all of our senses, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these senses in our nervous systems. And typically in modern urban life, we kind of shut them down, right? We don't want to hear the sounds of the city, um, we need to focus on our on our email, and so we're shutting out 
stimuli in the world. We don't want to smell, you know, the, the garbage. We don't want to like focus on all of the stimuli while we're trying to drive through a traffic circle. I mean, that would actually be dangerous if we were able to actually focus on everything happening there. So we have to kind of zero in and, and um, filter. We have to filter constantly which is a big drain actually on energy, on blood glucose, on our, on our brains. Um, but when you're in nature, you actually want to do the opposite. You want mm-hmm. to open up your <clears throat> You want to smell the smells of the woods. Um, you want to hear the bird song. And it's a very invigorating feeling if we pay attention to it. That's so great that you mentioned that. So in the Yoga Sutras, which is one of the oldest writings on yoga written or kind of compiled by Patanjali, um, Kriya Yoga in particular is defined with three practices, and one of those is self-study, and that's really what you were talking about, you know, really noticing these kinds of things, really bringing ourselves present, noticing how 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 we feel in different places, noticing what's going on inside of us, and not just being so directed with our attention outside, so that was great. So um, one of the things I really want to talk about is forest bathing, which is something that you experienced in both uh, Japan and Korea. And I was amazed to read about the extent of, you know, how widely practiced these things are. And this is from a few years ago, so they're probably even more so now. But uh, this uh, forest bathing, or Shinrin-yoku, as it's called in Japan, um, Japan has 48 official forest therapy trails with one quarter of the population participating and has Japan has spent four million in forest therapy research <laughs> since 2003. And physicians there can be certified in forest medicine. So, I mean, to me, this is like really, it was so cool to read about this. So what is forest bathing and what benefits have been shown from it? Yeah, forest bathing is... Um you know, it does not involve sort of taking off all your clothes you know, in the woods. Um, <laughs> but it, it really speaks to this, this idea of full sensory immersion. So what is required for it? I think it's really interesting. There are, there are certain cues and there are, there are now like these forest therapy and forest bathing rangers in a lot of these trails and woods. Um, and they, they help sort of educate the, the walkers and strollers about how to cue into your senses. Because it doesn't necessarily just happen, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll notice when you're going for a walk, you're still thinking about your to-do list, you're still thinking about, you know, how, all the errands you have to run when you're done, or that last phone call that you just had with your boss. But there are certain questions that we can ask ourselves, and this is what happens sometimes in sort of official forest bathing, where maybe you're asked to close your eyes and, and sit or stand still for a few deep breaths. And of course, when you close your eyes, that sharpens your other senses. So then you really start to hear things. Um, you may feel that breeze on your cheek. Um, you know, maybe um, you can feel the uneven ground under your feet. So, so by shutting down sort of one sense or the other, you can kind of help bring the other ones online. And what the research has shown is that after 15 minutes of sort of forest bathing, where you're really deliberately trying to tune in to those senses, um, your body really changes. So your um, cortisol stress hormone levels drop up to 16% in some of these studies. Um, your respiration slows, your blood pressure drops sort of two to 4%, your heart rate drops. And, you know, and at first I was a little bit skeptical of this because I thought, well, this is maybe an exercise effect, right? We know that exercises will do these things and it's good for us. 
But the researchers tried to control for that by having people walk kind of the same distance um, and the same amount of time in urban settings and also in the woods. And they measured the same, um, you know, outcomes in both. And they really only saw these nervous system benefits in the forest walkers. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of actually the starting point of my research. I was like, wow, there 15 minutes can sort of change your whole outlook. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, what if, right? It's it's like a it's like free medicine. It's like free blood pressure medicine. <clears throat> right. No right. Yeah. You talked about all of the senses being involved in especially in Japan and even like drinking you know, like a forest related tea, you know, to give the taste yeah. as well, you know, being encouraged to touch a plant, those kinds of things to really, you know, activate <clears throat> excuse me, all your senses. It just sounds like this was really a fun book to write. It was really fun. It's a lot more fun <laughs> than writing about presidential politics. I um, yeah, I mean, I, I the way I often write is in the first person. Um, and I often have kind of a, a question or a reason that's driving me, you know, and for me, it was like, why do I feel so bad living in the middle of Washington, D.C.? <laughs> what, what's behind that? And And also, how can I kind of change the paradigm? Because I do live here. So I need to figure out how to appreciate and access um, and cultivate, you know, a sense of wonder and awe and beauty in the city. And and I felt like that was a, a really important project for me. And it turns out it's now an important project for all of us um, in these yeah. times. Yeah, absolutely. So we've only got um, about a minute and a half or so before break, but um I did want to ask you, so you did all kinds of crazy and wild stuff for this. Like you had this carbon sensing thing and we're walking around like, what was your favorite experience, you know, in in writing this book of all of the things that you did? Oh, good question. Well, I I was able to do some time in the wilderness, which for me, you know, is is very um, soul soothing and and regenerative. And I wore in some in some of those settings, I actually wore an EEG cap, which measures brain waves um, in different settings. And I thought that was just really fascinating. And then we can yeah. talk about what I found out. Yeah, you talked about um, in the book about going out. Ki- canoeing or kayaking, you know, one morning with your little EEG cap on, I just had this great image of you out <laughs> paddling on the water with your sure, little EEG. really strange. <laughs> that, was, that was really, that was really great. Um, <clears throat> so with that, uh, pretty much come to the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with our guest today, journalist and author Florence Williams. We've been discussing her book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, healthier, and more creative. You can find out more about Florence, her books, and articles at her website, florencewilliams.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the Yoga Hour. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about how nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative, and particularly uh, things that we know about how it affects our senses, sense of smell, um, the uh, uh, sense of hearing, and um, vision. We'll be right back.
Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back from the break. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo. I'm joined today by journalist, author, and podcaster Florence Williams. So Florence, in your book, The Nature Fix, you review lots of studies about how various aspects of nature affect us, including nature scents, smells, uh, nature sounds, and viewing natural scenes. So regarding the the beneficial effect of forest smells, I was really interested in the ability of forest smells to increase one important component of our immune system, NK cells, or natural killer cells. NK cells are a type of white blood cell that attacks virus and bacteria-infected cells directly, in other words, without needing an antibody. Um, So why don't you talk about them first, and then I'll talk about the thing that I just looked up about how important NK cells are in our response to the coronavirus. So would you talk about the study about the Tokyo businessmen who spent three days in the woods and what effect it had on their immune systems? Sure. I was so fascinated by this. Uh, there's a, an immunologist uh, in Japan. His name is Dr. Cheng Li. And he's been very interested in um, sort of the human response to tree aerosols. So these are sometimes called phytoncides. And you know, trees, especially, I guess, large trees release, release large quantities of them. Um, they're anti-infective molecules for the trees themselves. Um, you know, trees emit these probably to help ward off fungal infections and things like that. Um, and and they also give the forests and the woods their wonderful smells. So, um, you know, think of a pine forest. In Japan, there are a lot of um, hinoki cypress pines. Um, Hinoki cypress pines, and they really smell sort of like Christmas trees, but uh, with a little bit of vapor rub, <laughs> kind of <laughs> again a very invigorating kind of smell. Um, and and what he found is that, and he's done a number of studies, you know, some of them just looking at cells in a petri dish, but some of them um, actually looking, um, you know, in the laboratory outside, where he sent these businessmen just kind of you know stay in cabins and you know, walk around the woods for a few days. And then he measured their natural killer cells before and after. And he found, I think it was up to a 30%, between a 20 and 30% bump in natural killer cells. This was actually corroborated in studies that he did, um, just looking at the cells themselves in Petri dishes and how the natural killer cells um, multiplied in the presence of some of these tree aerosols. And he also did some interesting hotel room studies where he really controlled different conditions. Um, and and then the, I've seen charts and graphs of this. The bump in natural killer cells, it remained elevated for up to 30 days after the visit to the forests. So his advice to me, you know, was very specific. It was like, we should all be going into the woods at least once a month, you know, to sort of elevate these natural killer cells. Um, You know, the the bump stayed highest for seven days. So if you can go once a week, you know, that's even better. Um, But but at least go once a month into the woods if if you're, you know, concerned about your immune system, which of course we all are right now. Mm Mm-hmm. No, exactly. I was going to mention to the listeners what you and I were chatting about over the break. So I I looked this up 
And it turns out that there have been some preliminary studies on natural killer cells and their importance in fighting the coronavirus. And they're important in two ways. So when the natural killer cells are really on top of things, and I'd imagine that an increase is going to an increase in them, like from smelling these forest smells is going to, you know, be associated with a, you know, an increase in their function, they can help moderate the immune response. And when the NK killer, killer, uh, when the NK cells or the natural killer cells are depleted, then that's when, you know, they're finding an association with the, the immune response running kind of uncontrolled. And so it seems like this is, you know, really an, an important, part of the immune system response to the coronavirus, these NK cells. So I was so interested. And the other thing that was interesting to me is uh, the same researcher, Ching Li, had subjects sleep in a hotel room and breathe humidified air that had the oil from these Hinoki cypress trees. So, and again, it showed a response in their NK cells, right? Right, and they didn't have the response if they slept in a hotel room that was just emitting, you know, H2O. Right. Um, so that was fascinating. But I think, you know, too, Laurel, there's another immune component to spending time in nature, um, which is that there are just so many, um, there's so much microflora and microbiota, right, microbiota in these environments. Um, and, and there have been some really interesting studies looking at kids who attend forest preschools yeah. versus kids who attend kind of regular urban preschools. Um, and then you, if you take a, like a skin swab from these kids, um, the ones who go to forest preschools have so much more diversity of microflora on their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is the way humans evolved. We evolved you know, to, to be amidst all of these organisms and our immune systems are sort of geared and trained for them. Um, and so there's you know, possibly a link um, to why the forest preschoolers are healthier. They get fewer infections. They have um, less eczema, less asthma. Um, because maybe their immune systems are sort of primed and working in the presence of all of these microorganisms that we're sort of deprived of, you know, in our normal urban lives. Yeah, uh, that's that's a great, great addition there. It's and it is cow. And I, I was also thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking of our 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 microflora, our, you know, our all of our gut bacteria. And I bet these kids that are in the forest preschools also have a richer you know, um, intestinal bacterial component too, because kids are always putting things in their mouths. I would be amazed if they <laughs> if they didn't do that and in forest preschool. I'm, I'm also, you know, my first book was partly about breasts, breast health and breast milk and um, cultures that live closer to the forest, you know, still also have much more diversity in the breast milk mm-hmm. than people in, you know, ur- than urban mothers do. And, and so what is the impact of that on the infant immune system? So turning now to to hearing, you uh, cite a lot of studies about noise pollution and how we are really losing the ability to hear the natural world. And you point out, which of course I knew, but it was great to have this highlighted, that hearing is our main alerting and orienting sense that tells us when something is out there and then from which direction it's coming. So sound triggers our strongest startle reaction. So you you talk about noise pollution and particularly airport noise, which I guess has been studied quite a bit, and the association between ambient sound and hypertension. So what did those studies show? I'm so fascinated by this. I I think because when I moved to D.C., 
was one of the most kind of annoying <laughs> was the extreme noise pollution that I hadn't really experienced. And so I became really interested in that. You know, when, when humans lived out on the Pleistocene, um, we had to pay attention, especially to rumbling, sort of growling sounds. Um, and we would have to wake up and flee and, you know, um, fight. Uh, and and so a lot of these urban sounds today, um, airplane noise, transit noise, um, kind of in some ways resemble those sounds. They're they're loud, rumbling sounds. Um, we kind of get used to them, you know. If we're we we think, oh, I'm used to the airplane noise. I sleep through it. You know, people who live under airplanes and I say, oh, I sleep through it. It's no big deal. But but when their actual nervous systems have been studied and when their stress hormones are studied, they actually do show a nervous system response in their sleep. So their cortisol levels will rise, their heartbeat and respiration levels will rise. On some levels, their bodies are sort of starting to prepare for, for fight or flight. And their blood pressure goes up. Their blood pressure goes up. And over time, you know, years of living under these air, airports, under these flyways, um, those people show greater hypertension. They have greater um, risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. They require more anti-anxiety medication. You know, they may not even know why, but right. but their immune or their um, their nervous systems are definitely a little more on edge than people who live farther away from these noises. And unfortunately, um, studies have also shown that there's an effect on learning. So kids who go to schools near highways or under these flight paths. Um, have some delayed learning, um, you know, possibly a sort of mediated again by these like micro stress responses. Mm. So, so fascinating. It was amazing to me, not just this part, but there's so much information out there about our, our nervous systems and the effect of the natural world, you know, on them. One of the things that was hopeful to me is the the part that you mentioned about the Nat National Park Service, United States National Park Service, being interested in noise pollution and protecting these natural soundscapes. And I was impressed that they were able to create a quiet zone in Muir Woods National Monument because they became aware that this was what people were saying. It's like, that's what bothers me here is the noise. Can you get rid of the noise? So they created this quiet area. And so can you talk about how much more of the natural soundscape and particular bird song people could can now hear in this quiet zone? Sure. You know, the flip side of <clears throat> sounds being bad for our nervous systems is that um, nature sounds are really good for us. And so studies show that when we listen to birdsong, um, it, it sort of helps soothe us, you know, especially if it's kind of pretty birdsong as opposed to really grating, like crow birdsong. Um, and so there was a study in Muir Woods that just looked at um, how much our ability to hear those nice nature sounds changes, you know, in different environments. And, and what they found in Muir Woods is that um, when they created this quiet zone, and they actually put signs on the trees saying this is a quiet zone. You know, please do not speak loudly and, you know, don't speak loudly into your phones. Um, the, the listening distance doubled. So instead of being able to hear a bird um, that's maybe 10, 10 meters away, um, in the quiet zone, you can hear birds that are 20 meters away. So it really effectively doubles this, the you know distance of sort of natural, pleasant sound that you're able to hear. And I think a lot of us are maybe noticing this now, you know, during the lockdowns that um, as our as our flights 
have have dropped and and um, a lot of industrial sounds have slowed. Um, a lot of people are suddenly interested in birds and birdsong because they're hearing so many more birds. The birds have right. always been there, mm-hmm. but we haven't been able to hear them. Yeah, that's great. So <clears throat> you talk about uh, next moving on in your book, The Sense of Vision, and there's lots of information about how being able to see a natural green space has been found to be beneficial. So what are some of the benefits that have been shown from having a natural natural view? I know it's they've been studied in, in lots of different environments, like, you know, in hospitals. That was what I was interested in, but also in housing projects, you know, that yeah, it, it I just really was fascinated by this. And I had I think, you know, because I used to live in the Rocky Mountains, I was sort of a snob about nature. I really thought, well, it's got to be this pristine mountain to really count as a nature experience. Um, and so I was just really stunned by some of these studies showing that actually just looking at a tree outside your window um, or looking at some grass outside your housing project in Chicago um, can actually change your behavior and sort of your outlook. Um, the hospital studies were really interesting. Um, they were performed by Roger Ulrich uh, in the 1980s, and they've been very, um, I think, influential. He um, in, the, in these studies, they randomly assigned gallbladder surgery patients um, to different rooms in the hospital. That, and, and these rooms either overlooked kind of another brick building or they overlooked uh, a, a treed kind of lawn green landscape. Um, and, and, and there were you know, hundreds of people in the study. What they found was that the patients with the, with the pretty views, the nature views, um, actually uh, were able to get released from the hospital earlier. They spent an average sort of less day recovering in the hospital. They requested less pain medication. Um, their nurses reported them to be more cheerful, <laughs> sort of better patients. Um, so that was fascinating to me. And that's been sort of corroborated in other studies looking at window views from housing projects and from schools. Um, again, showing that um, there seems to be kind of a stress mediating effect to better test scores, um, to less kind of aggressive and violent behavior. Um, and even videos of nature in a prison uh, have also been linked to um, just less violence and aggression. Mm. That's amazing. I was, I was going to ask about that, about obviously it's great to be out in nature, but I think this research that you just mentioned, because it is a little older, it's from the 80s, has been used for, in a lot of ways, for example, to put, I was at my dentist, I was getting my teeth cleaned and looking up and there was, of course, a nature scene, a beautiful nature scene that was on the ceiling. And I know, you know, in doctor's offices, there's often also <laughs> over the exam table, there's this nature scene. So Obviously, I would guess that being outside is the best, but you get some effect from looking at even just a picture. Is that right? Yeah, there's this interesting dose response curve. So, you know, obviously, the more sort of immersive the nature is, if you're someone who's comfortable with that, um, you know, you're going to get more benefits. But yes, even if you can only look at, you know, a poster (laughs) of a mountain or a coastline in the hospital room or in your doctor's office or in your workplace or or your screensaver, you know, I think, you know, like Apple computers has sort of intuitively figured this out that people like looking at nature settings. Um, They've named their operating systems, you know, Yosemite and (laughs) so on. Um, We have very positive associations even just with these images. Wow. So another place that you went was Finland. 
And there's been a lot of research there about the dose of nature that's optimal. So what is the dose of nature that Finnish researchers have established as a, at a baseline? And, and is there a good reason to exceed that if we can? <laughs> Finland is an interesting country to study because like the United States, like many places, um, there are tremendous sort of uh, increases in anxiety and depression, uh, in obesity and so on. Um, you know, a lot of these northern countries have very high de- rates of depression, partly because it's probably so dark all the time, you know, in the winter. Um, and so, so because there is public medicine there, you know, researchers are really interested in preventing some of these diseases. So what they've what they've now kind of learned after doing some of these research, after doing some of these studies, and what they recommend is that if people can get five hours a month of nature immersion. <laughs> so that that equates to maybe a couple visits a week of 30 to 40 minutes. It doesn't have to be, again, wilderness exposure. It can be kind of a city park. That that seems to sort of prevent mild depression. Mm. If you can get 10 hours a month, that's maybe better. Um, but at five hours a month, um, that seems to be sort of the minimum dose, if, if you're finished. <laughs> now, there was another study <laughs> that came out after my book was published in the UK. This just came out last summer suggesting that people in the UK need a little more than that to be their happiest uh, and have the greatest well-being and also be healthy. And that's two hours a week. Mm. So that's eight hours a month. Maybe that's because they had Brexit going on or something. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Lord knows we all need, right, I think maybe as much as we could get right now. And of course, there's going to be individual difference. So some of us may at certain times in our life feel like, oh, I need to get outside every day or I need to actually go camping and spend the weekend. Um, or we just, you know, might be fine and, and not need it for a while. So, again, it's it sort of comes back to, I think, just paying attention, right, to how we feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very struck by that. And at first I read it about the five hours and I read it, just kind of misread it as five hours a week. And so then I re- reread it. It was like, no, no, five hours a month is the Finland yeah, study. Doable. And I thought, wow, that's really doable. It's really you know? doable. And, and look at what we pay, right, to try to cure depression right. and what we go through. I mean, right now, you know, one in four or five Americans or something is on an antidepressant. Those have, you know, notorious side effects. I'm not encouraging people to go off them, but, you know, I would love it if the medical community, you know, kind of thought of maybe some alternatives, especially for mild and moderate depression, um, you know, before they start prescribing pills, which is, you know, such an easy kind of thing to do if you're a doctor. And, and of course, there's a tremendous lobby, you know, pharmaceutical lobby encouraging this as a solution. There's unfortunately no nature lobby. Um, so I feel like that's my, my role. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, try going outside two to three times a week before you start the pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so in along this line of dose, you mentioned this nature py- pyramid that's been promoted by Tim Beatley, who runs the Biophilic Cities Project at the University of Virginia. So what is this nature pyramid? I like the pyramid idea. I think everybody remembers like the food pyramid. You know? Right. right. <laughs> we so, don't really use the food pyramid anymore, but I see all That's right. right. So what does the nature pyramid recommend in terms of, of ex- our exposure to nature? Yeah, I really love this. So so at the top of the nature pyramid are these kinds, is it sort of the dessert? Like that's the rare 
but lovely doses that we get in the wilderness. So maybe we'll go to the wilderness, you know, once a year, or maybe we'll go once in a lifetime. But that's where really profound kind of deep self-examination, you know, can happen. And of course, lots of cultures recognize this, um, you know, through their rites of passage, traditions, and so on. Um, The wilderness is sort of where we go to really think things through, or maybe, um, you know, um, try to deal with bigger issues like like trauma and 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 um, other transitions in our lives, and then the middle of the pyramid are sort of these you know intentional visits maybe to local parks or regional parks. I feel like that's the zone where Finland kind of is. You know, this is the five hours a month where you go someplace for a nature dose. Um, but the bottom of the pyramid is really kind of our bread and butter, and you know that is nearby nature. That's the nature that we sort of you know get every day. Um, most of us. 70% of Americans live in urban areas. So we have to figure out how to make that kind of nearby nature as good as it can be. We need high quality city parks. We need to make sure that everyone who lives in cities has has access to those parks, not just people in wealthy neighborhoods and who attend wealthy schools, which is why it's so important now to think about um, how to green public schoolyards how to green public housing projects, how to plant more trees in neighborhoods throughout the city, how to maybe um, have better, you know, regulations on certain industrial sounds like leaf blowers um, and airplane noise and pathways. Um, We need to bring nature back to where we all live. And that is going to be urban areas. All right. That is our our call to action, you know, here about your neighborhood. You know, if you are, I I know I used to live in San Jose and there was a big tree planting, you know, project where you could sign up your your local uh, park and um, the urban forest would come, you know, you had to like arrange it and people had to, like we as a neighborhood really wanted more trees in our park and you had to have so many volunteers in your neighborhood who would commit to watering their tree like you were assigned a tree and you had to water the tree like so many times a week while it was just getting established you know for the first several months you know and then of course it was you know it was on its own but I know there are things like that that are going on all over all over the place so maybe there's something in in uh in your neighborhood listener so um here we are. We've got a couple of minutes left. So in closing, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to leave with our listeners? I have a little motto that, that in the book that I like to repeat and leave people with. And it's very simple. Um, it's go outside, go often, don't forget to breathe, and please bring children and young people with you. So we need to extend this connection to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So important for kids to have that as an experience when they're growing up, makes it easier for them to access it, you know, when they get older. And as you were you were pointing out in the book, what's interesting about the world is that our population just recently, the world population recently passed the 50% mark, where now there's there's more than half of the of the people in the world live in an urban area versus a versus a rural area. Is that right? That's right. There's one anthropologist suggests that we rename our species Metro Sapiens <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we are now. We're in a different habitat, and we have to figure out um, how to thrive in this urban environment 
And it's, you know, it's really doable, but we need to improve access for everyone and we need to improve the quality of nature that's here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've given us so much great information about it. And for more, I recommend your book to people, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show, and we've been talking about Get Outside to Lift Your Mood with our guest, Florence Williams, author of the book that I just mentioned, The Nature Fix. You can learn more about Florence Williams, her books and articles at the website florencewilliams.com. You can follow her on Instagram at Florence999. I saw some very lovely uh, picture nature pictures there, Florence. It looks like you post some nature pictures. <laughs> I do. More and more, they've been really local. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the show today, Florence. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. So join me next week when I will be talking with poet and author Mark Nepo about his new book, The Book of Soul. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious fulfilled living in today's world. Center for Spiritual Enlightenment and Yogacharya O'Brien are offering many online opportunities to deepen your spiritual practice, including a lovely daily meditation at 6.30 in the morning, also a weekday meditation at 4 p.m. These are Pacific times. There are also other classes and programs you can participate in online. Just go to csecenter.org, and on the main page there, you'll see a link for online programs. Remember to subscribe to the Yogara podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, mention it to a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder, director, and host of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado, CSE's global media outreach manager, Holly Gray, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unityonlineradio.org. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.